I think I was sitting on the porch with one of our first clients who actually forked the chain at first. And then they were like, this is way more problem than it's worth. And so they ended up becoming the first AvaCloud client. And he made it real simple. He's just like, I don't want to be a blockchain infrastructure expert. Um, I want to build these products that we're trying to get to market. And uh, and so I was kind of laughing. I was like, well, that's great because that's what we do. We are the blockchain infrastructure ever. Well, Nick, I'm super excited to have you be joining me today. There's been a lot of <laughs> talks and controversies as the industry is no surprise to uh, but I, I think there's no better conversation than to really have with you today on the product of what Avalanche is ultimately building with multiple different subnets, the different scaling solutions. So really looking forward to it and appreciate you coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Very excited to be here. Yeah, definitely uh, excited to dig into some of these topics. Lots going on for sure. 100%. Maybe just as a brief background and intro, uh, you do a lot at Avid Labs, but I think this is maybe one of your earlier podcasts. Can you just give a pr brief intro, what you do at Avid Labs and kind of your involvement there? Sure. Um, so <clears throat> I'm the SVP head of product at Avid Labs. I've been with the team um, since right before the mainnet launch. Um, my responsibilities span all everything product related across all the areas. Um, as of lately in this year and the last half for this year, it's really been focused on some new products we've been launching, AvaCloud and some items like that. And then hist historical to that, um, I co-founded a crypto hedge fund and ran that for several years. And before that, it's a lot of institutional finance. Amazing. Well, perfect background to ultimately onboard the next kind of 10 million, 100 million users. I think maybe just to jump into it and kind of talk state of the market. It's been fascinating to me just this last couple of weeks with how narratives are always shifting, but more recently kind of focus on inscriptions, uh, really taking over the entire industry, people pushing chains to their limit. Can you kind of talk about some of your thoughts on how inscriptions has kind of played out uh, and particularly around Avalanche, where you kind of see the future of kind of the horizontal scaling that Avalanche has really been pioneering? For sure. It's been a really interesting experiment that I think we're still watching kind of play itself out over the span of time. Um, you know, there's a lot of questions around what is the viability uh, of inscriptions and are they, you know, it's you know, there's that saying of like, the market uh, can stay, you know, irrational much longer than most people can stay solvent. And it looks like these, you know, we're try still trying to figure out, like, is there a good business case behind it? But either way, it's impacting all the chains and all the users. And I think it's highlighting some of the, you know, forward-looking scaling issues that would have come into play no matter what as adoption increases. And so I think we're having to address a lot of that. Most of that is kind of hitting the hardest with the spike in gas fees. Um, but it's also, you know, it's also testing you know, throughput and the ability to process a lot of transactions in a short period of time. And so as we see that, what we're seeing is what we're getting is a lot of people looking towards the concept of subnets or custom blockchains um, to be able to segregate themselves away from the congestion in, on the public main chain and to be able to control the configurations around those blockchains a little bit better. 
Yeah, it's it's been fascinating to watch from like the outside. Uh, I think I was reviewing some of Kevin's tweets, uh, and he was specifying that the C chain was hitting somewhere around like 900 plus transactions per second, which is pretty remarkable. Uh, and then even just seeing other EVM chains, I mean, it's not just Avalanche, it's really across the industry where these have been really taking foothold, causing some issues. And it, maybe that's a good segue into some of the future things that Avalanche has really been pioneering in terms of subnets and these custom blockchains being able to really define much more granularity. Do you see ultimately these inscriptions moving towards their own subnet? How do you see that in the future uh, vision that Avalanche sees? Uh, or in the future vision that Avalanche kind of anticipates, where do you see like inscriptions ultimately playing out? Yeah, I mean, it's a really good question. So inscriptions would be perfect for a subnet. Um, I mean, they, they are ideal for that. They remove the congestion from the main chain and gas prices will come down. They have a lot of control over that they can establish their own tokenomics, their own native token and the gas settings and, and just a lot of customization around configuring it for high throughput. Um, and so that would make a ton of sense. And what we're seeing is kind of, you know, I think there's that topic, but I also think what we're seeing is a lot of the, um, the applications that are sitting on the main chain are approaching us and saying, hey, um, maybe it makes sense for us to move our applications to a subnet so we're not always going to be beholden to the latest, you know, thing that's happening and how they're kind of pushing the technology limits. Because I think the inscriptions is kind of an unintended consequence of the technology. They basically found like a new way to yep. do something that wasn't really planned for in the initial architecture. And I think we're ended up solving for that. And so, you know, on the auto cloud side, which is really there to provide builders with a means to, um, con you know, configure, deploy, um, and, and manage, you know, have a fully managed blockchain for them so they can just focus on their application um, without having to deal with a lot of the complexity of managing blockchain infrastructures. And so we're seeing more of that, which is, hey, you know, talk to us about Ava Cloud, talk to us about what the capabilities are, what the migrations look like. Um, and so, you know, that is kind of the conversation that we're starting on. But we, I do think that you'll see these these types of projects naturally move over because it makes more economical economic sense for them to than rather than running on the public chain. I've, I've done quite a few technical podcasts with uh, Kevin, uh, one of the co-founders of Avalanche, and also Patrick. I, and it, amazing technical conversations. I definitely recommend listeners go listen to those as well after this one. But for those that are not as familiar with AvaCloud, are they subnets? Are they kind of a new branding? Can you like fill us in and what AvaCloud actually is? Totally. So, yeah, I mean, Patrick, Kevin, that whole team, just big brains, and they really give us the raw materials on the product side that we can then take and then figure out what the marketplace needs and then try to shape that. And I think that, you know, that's what gave birth to AvaCloud. I mean, it was, um, you know, we, we had, subnets were part of the white paper. There was this kind of very strong forethinking around how are we going to scale this thing as adoption takes over? And um, and as subnets rolled out in 2021 and into 22, we looked at it and adoption was there, but it wasn't like 
really, really taking on. And so, um, you know, we kind of went in and said, all right, we have these subnets, we have this technology, it works, it scales really well, it gives all these benefits to people. So what's keeping us from like this explosive adoption? And, you know, so the first thing is just like, are people not interested in having their own custom layer one chains? And we went out and talked and the answer was just equivocally no, right? Everybody was very interested in this. Um, but then we dug a little bit deeper by doing some interviews and, and it was just like, well, it kind of it kind of broke down into three things, actually. So like the costs of in the form of operating expenses, so OPEX, and that's really in the form of people and technology. So if you want to you know, run your own chain, it's it's a quite a bit different from any kind of Web2 infrastructure. You have RPC nodes and you have to do data ingestion and you have to do um, you know, the block explorers and the APIs and validators and messaging and all this stuff comes into play. And so the thinking was like, hey, we're not sure we want to build an entire team and, and make that investment right away in order to be able to manage this. Um, the second was time to market. So, you know, historically launching your own layer one comes with a ton of complexity. Um, and, um, you know, I think subnets really address that in a unique way. And then third one was just reputational risk. Like sometimes the promises have been made in the past around the capabilities of custom chains that necessarily didn't pan out. And so you have a lot of times, you know, business decision makers moving into this space. And so, you know, they were worried about the reputational risk and really pushing forward any one solution. And so, you know, we took some time and said, okay, how do we solve for this? And so the idea was, all right, we need to take subnets and put them into a fully managed service so that people can launch them in minutes and they can do it at a very cost-effective route and that we have a proven set of clients and use cases within their specific sectors so that they can really see that it works before they're going in and putting in their reputational risk. And so... You know, that was last November. I think I was sitting on the porch with one of our first clients who actually forked the chain at first. And then they were like, this is way more problem than it's worth. And so they ended up becoming the first AvaCloud client. And he made it real simple. He's just like, I don't want to be a blockchain infrastructure expert. Um, I want to build these products that were trying to get to market. And uh, and so I was kind of laughing. I was like, well, that's great because that's what we do. We are the blockchain infrastructure effort. So there was this nice, you know, um, meeting in the middle. It is hard. Uh, I, th I think I've seen a lot of people try to kind of go out and create their own app chains. And to your point, whether it's the kind of custom wallets, the different block explorers, all the things that you don't really think about, uh, especially from a product engineering standpoint. Uh, there's very few people that are very good blockchain builders to begin with and have put in really the time required to actually understand these systems to the level that's required. And I'm excited to your point about the opportunity to give engineers, product engineers, the ability to focus on products. Because I think once we do that, that's where we really see the industry take off. So in terms of Ava Cloud, is kind of the thought process, I'll give them the basics in terms of being able to spin up their own infrastructure, their own subnet, uh, allow them to really get to the starting line as quick as possible. And if down the line, they eventually want to customize a particular subnet 
they can do so. Uh, and they have the flexibility with the design architecture, but at least initially to get them going, um, allow them kind of a blockchain out of the box to get going as quickly as possible. Totally. So if if you go to allercloud.io and you log in, there's the um, this initial free tier and it's just a developer launch of a blockchain and you can actually customize it a fair bit. Um, it's not connecting into the test net as fully isolated, but there are pre-compiles that come along with it and you can get as kind of advanced as you want. But the if you go through the flow, it's literally, um, it takes around 30 seconds. And then the blockchain itself builds and launches um, in about that time too. So you definitely have a fully functional blockchain within five minutes time that you can use to kind of kick the tires on testing the throughput. Um, you know, is the consensus algorithm as fast as it claims to be? And you can put it through a bunch of rigors and and get something up and running pretty quickly. I think there's one point that you bring up, which is something we're very focused on now, because I think, you know, our teams have done a really good job at the infrastructure layer and kind of the data platform layer to make these blockchains launch extremely quickly. Um, so you have all this powerful technology. It's the same technology that's processed over a billion transactions um, on the main networks, right, on the C-chain. Um, and it's all your hands in, in this custom blockchain for yourself. The, and, you know, to put on top of that, there's all this configuration you can do where it's going to start, start to support multi-VM. Um, and so you won't just be working with the EVM as we know it. it has some limitations as it scales right now. And so we've seen the advent of a lot of other VMs that are starting to pop up to challenge that. And, um, and it'll support that. But the thing that we realized as we got to that was, okay, so now the builders have this like very powerful blockchain, but we need to fill that gap between the infrastructure and the application layer. And that's where you'll see, we recently announced a, um, a partnership with, with third web, which is the, you know, the first provider on our integrations page. And so, you know, they're really providing a lot of out-of-the-box scaffolding and tooling and, and to, to be able to fill that application layer so that the application developers and, and, the, and the builders, they end up just focusing more on their bespoke use case and what it is that they're really trying to accomplish rather than thinking about the underlying technology so much. That's amazing. I'm, I'm super excited to continue to progress more towards that as the core kind of hardcore engineering of distributed systems gets abstracted away. It's really should be about the product and what you can build the problems that you're solving. And I think as a product person in my past life, I very much appreciate that as well. And awesome to hear that um, Ava Cloud will have multiple different VMs. I think one thing that the industry definitely getting started the Ethereum virtual machine was by far dominant. I mean, by so most measures today, it's the dominant virtual machine. But newer virtual machines that can do parallel processing, kind of localize different fees um, are kind of coming about. And it's amazing to hear that you'll support those as well. Is it really, I guess, in the long-term vision, is it really just trying to be um, agnostic to different architecture types, build in the most flexibility in terms of kind of feature sets and allowing the engineers, the product engineers to really select those features for the types of applications that they want to build. Totally. So 
You know, I, uh, Patrick and the platform team have been putting quite a bit of effort into the Hyper SDK right now, which is something that's really new, really cool, you know, along with the movie and stuff. But I think that you'll, you're seeing some new thinking, some next generation thinking around the VM space. And we want to support all of it. Our, our goal is not to try to guide anybody into a specific, specific architecture type. It's to not be overly opinionated, actually. It's to really give them the flexibility, but all of it we want to be kind of modular so they can click in the pieces they need without having to be super technical um, and then put those together. And then I think the piece that we're going to launch early next year, which is what I consider to be the, the last piece that really makes the initial version of this work is the interoperability layer um, with warp messaging and teleporter. And so as those two come out, that really allows you to tie all these networks together in a very clean way. And then I think that begs the question of, well, what about other chains? And, um, you know, our thinking around that is, yes, we want to support connectivity to other chains. We don't want to try to create these walls. Let's let kind of the, the builders decide on how they want to connect two different chains for whatever reason it may be. We don't want to prohibit that. We want to encourage that. We want to kind of encourage the interoperability and just the general innovation across. We think as, as we do more of this and we support more of this, it's going to like the product people love flywheels, right? So I'm going to give you a, like a, a flywheel thing. So, you know, we, we started off with like, Oh, how do we acquire more users? And, and at some point, I think early 21, it kind of came to me like, that's doesn't feel like the right approach. We actually, <clears throat> need to acquire more builders. And so, you know, the, the flywheel is make the technology incredibly easy to work with and deploy, like make it as easy as launching a website. Um, and that will lead to new ideas and more deployments. And then a certain amount of those deployments are actually going to find um, product market fit. And when they do that, then they're going to attract more users. And then those users, then you finally get to the users, but those users are going to have more use cases from using it that that maybe the product people haven't thought about. And so that's going to lead to, you know, more deployment of more subnets and, and more functionality across um, different business sectors. And so you get into this, this nice flywheel, and the, but it all starts with making the technology itself accessible. And so that's really been our focus for the last year. I fully agree. In terms of maybe... Maybe taking a step back and, and for you, Nick, painting this broader picture of where you think the Avalanche vision kind of or the, the vision for the blockchain industry as a whole really ends up at. Uh, you're kind of talking about some of the applications on the C chain today wanting to uh, build their own subnets, have their own custom blockchains for some of the reasons uh, that inscriptions ultimately brought about. Do you ultimately see kind of in the more modular point of view of the world, each application has their own chain and they're all hyper uh, connected through um, Avalanche's communication protocol. Can you maybe paint that in-state vision of the future and where you see the industry ultimately playing out? Yeah. I mean, I think in industry-wide, I think you have different chains kind of approaching different approaching it in different ways. Like, you know, you have some moving with this async model and doing a single chain that's going to scale to, you know, 10,000 plus transactions 
per second. And I think that's a viable avenue. Um, and I think that's something that we're interested in as well. But I kind of see that, and, you know, within Avalanche, I kind of see this, this, this growth, this maturity um, layer where you kind of start off. And for most people, it makes sense to just launch on the C-chain. Or, you know, I, I expect that we will be launching other um, alternative VM public chains like the C-chain, which is EVM based, but, you know, for other VMs and letting applications launch on there. Then kind of kick the tires very quickly and get up and running. And then I think as you start to see things like inscriptions or things that are that are impacting the ability for those applications to function properly or, or really serve their users in a way that's meaningful, you'll start to see them kind of graduate into their own subnet. Now, as we make that easier and easier, there's less of a reason to launch on the public chain. Um, but it, it all falls under this underlying assumption that... Uh, that the interoperability is going to be very clean. And I think that's the point right now, kind of going into 24, that everybody's going to be focused on is like, you shouldn't really know which network you're connecting to, or, you know, you shouldn't have to care about any of that stuff. We, we see all the time, like blockchain will reach mass adoption when you no longer you're using a blockchain. And we're starting to see that with like the SK example and stuff like that. Um, but I think like, as we go in, you know, there's these five unique, advancements, these kind of key differentiators, specifically within the avalanche world right now that I can speak to. Um, it's harder for me to speak to a lot of the other chains more broadly, um, but I think a lot of what they're doing is really cool. But I think, you know, we have the the unique consensus mechanisms and, you know, Kevin and his team are always looking for ways to optimize on those. Um, you, you have the subnet, so the idea of horizontal scaling, and we're already seeing that work. Like we we know that is a solution that will work. And so when when projects that are on the C-chain come to us and they're like, you know, the gas fees are killing us on inscriptions, it's not like, oh, we need you to wait until we get this thing done so you can launch on. It is, here's an alternative for you right now, and here's a very cost-effective way that you can get to market extremely quickly. Um, and then the last, you know, the next piece is just, like we talked about this, the multi-VM support and creating a world in which people can kind of choose their flavor of VM based on what their their use cases are. And so then as the inter interoperability then comes through next year, and then, you know, Ava Cloud is really allowing people to be able to leverage all this technology without having to have a super deep level of of technical expertise. And so I think as those five thing kind of meld into something that works really well together, you'll start to see much broader adoption from um, much more traditional channels as well, because it's just less overhead, less complexity, less risk. Yeah, totally. In terms of one thing you kind of continued to double click on was that interlinking between these different subnets and really making sure that as frictionless as possible. I think today, a lot of people ultimately look to uh, what Cosmos has done with IBC in not necessarily saying it's one-to-one, -one, but similar functionality. Can you maybe talk uh, from the product perspective, what steps the Ava Labs team needs to do to ensure kind of that frictionless experience or it is, is it already there today and it's just kind of ironing out some of the details? So it's already there today and it's already there today because the P-Chain exists. And the P-Chain is this very you know unique piece. I would say like if you look at the C-Chain and the X-Chain, they're really just 
subnets. They're kind of like the first incarnations of subnets that that were public and took on mass adoption. But the P-Chain is truly unique, and it's really what enables warp messaging and teleporter to be successful. So I think in an IBC model, you really kind of get into this one-to-one where you're sending messages across in, in a large form across and passing quite a bit of data back and forth between um, the chains in order to be able to communicate properly. And um, I think there's a tremendous amount of flexibility in that. And we've, and that's definitely been the most successful version of this yet. I think word messaging is taking a slightly different approach um, to the same problem. And I wouldn't say it's too far away from it, but I think it makes the amount of data that you're sending between the chains because the, the P chain is pulling all the validator sets and has record of that allows it to be a bit more lightweight. And therefore I think it's going to scale um, a bit more effortlessly with less cost. It's going to be more efficient per, per message transaction. And that's something that we think about a lot as we're kind of building out these things. I'm always a fan of saving uh, bandwidth costs. Uh, those, whether it's high throughput chains or ultimately kind of the messages that, that are passed in between these different chains, it can be large eventually. And so anything to, on the consensus side or to um, kind of software engineering, uh, software engineering customizations to mitigate that, I'm very much a, a fan of. In terms of, Things that you have seen Ava Cloud use today. Ultimately, you mentioned some people on the C chain kind of wanting to bridge out, do their own thing on their own subnet. Uh, but ultimately, other clients, uh, the first client that you mentioned to ever use the Ava Cloud. Can you talk about where where you're really seeing kind of the product market fit from the Ava Cloud side? Totally. Yeah. So it's been you know there's there's kind of four core areas that have come to the fray. And the first one that has been very kind of clear for the use case is gaming. Um, And I think that that gaming use case has been around for a while, but I think it's finally starting to be realized. And so when these game companies, especially game publishers, saw the ability to be able to mint their own native token, to roll out gas relayers, to implement account abstraction, to be able to um, really control the configuration behind it, I think it kind of opened up um, a series of early adopters who were willing to get out and try. And I think that they're seeing quite a bit of success in what they're doing. And so, you know, it, it really opens new economies for them where they have the ability to, um, especially, you know, issue a native token of their own and then be, be able to launch a game and be able to use that token within the game itself. And then as that game hits its maturity cycle, then launch another game behind it using the same. So you're not having to rebuild that infrastructure and you'll be able to create utility for the underlying token over and over again. And so, you know, you get something like Shrapnel, which is going to be super exciting. Um, And so they kind of have this, this three part business model where they're, rewarding the players through through nft ownership and in-game asset ownership and they're you know they're empowering creators for modding maps and introducing new types of assets to the game um and so this you know creates this player creator owned economies within their own world in which they have full control of the underlying blockchain and are not competing for block space 
in any way other than with their own their own game. Um, it also you know yeah, just, games are fascinating. I, they require kind of that high throughput and low latency, and really to the highest degree, and that flexibility. I'm very curious to see how they continue to use that in the subcat subnet context over kind of the journey, because you can imagine some of like my personal favorite games like World of Warcraft or RuneScape eventually have some blockchain component where uh, you're trading these items on chain, which would be super cool. Yeah. And that's kind of a unique part of it too, which is you now have the ability to truly interoperate assets between games should you choose to. And really, you could interoperate outside of your own ecosystem and do partnerships with, with, you know, with other games. And so this is all on the table just by the nature of the technology of itself and that it interoperates so easily um, together. And so there's not this whole piece of like integrating one system with its own custom architecture with another system with its own cu custom architecture. They're all fundamentally playing by the same rules at the base layer. And that opens a lot of unique kind of partnership opportunities for them. Yeah, it, I'm I'm fascinated to see what will be kind of the first game to have crypto game to have kind of that Fortnite effect, uh, because that will bring a lot of users on online or even something like more simplistic like Among Us. That's not super graphic intensive, but still fun and. Uh, kind of has that virality because I think truly it will bring in quite a few users to Web3. I mean, in my point of view, outside of NFTs, which have been great, DeFi Summer, uh, which happened in 2020 with Ethereum, was really kind of that small catalyst to get everybody excited. But I think even then it was like 50,000 users. Have you seen either DeFi and subnets start to take off in a more prominent way um, even outside of kind of gaming? Uh, so, you know, the secondary markets on gaming are, is going to be huge. But, you know, we are seeing things like Dexalot, which is running on a subnet and is basically pooling assets across any of the chains and then representing them in a central limit order book. That's pretty neat, right? That's, that's like, uh, and so if you were, you know, taking part in <laughs> any of the, the stuff that's been going on around the meme coins um, and the gas prices were, you know, very high. You could still go to Dexalot and you could still make trades on those coins uh, for pennies. And so, you know, there are these solutions that are popping up to try to solve for the congestion, but also solve, you know, leverage the interoperability of multiple networks and providing, you know, DeFi opportunities, yield opportunities, secondary market opportunities for anything else that's popping up within the ecosystem uh, and i think we'll we'll see more of that the um the gate I, I think we based on everything i'm seeing in the roadmaps i think the gate you'll see that wave of gaming mania kind of hit in the second half of this year if not early next year like there are definitely some really cool things that i'm seeing um that are like okay we're we're I like hope so we're there you know it feels like that yeah. level of uh professional we, polish we need that a uh, crypto iphone moment and i think as much as kind of going back to our earlier conversation and really focus on the product 
being able to abstract as much as possible so that either game engineers, DeFi engineers, any smart contract engineer can focus on that product as a step forward in that direction. So I'm all about uh, scalability and user adoption. I just want people to use these blockchains because I truly think it's one of the more interesting technologies out there. Uh, AI is obviously a hot topic, but you have to have hundreds of millions or at least a couple of GPUs, large GPUs to do anything interesting. But with blockchains, yeah. you can just have even a laptop uh, or an iPhone and start to make smart contracts and do something interesting, which I, I, I really loved about the space. Totally. I think that's part of the dream is kind of leveling the playing field a bit so that you don't have to be kind of a large conglomerate or multinational in order to have the funding in order to get an idea out. And that's at the heart of what a lot of what we're doing. I mean, the if you kind of go over to the consumer side of the product world within within Avalanche, you know, you have the core wallet and I get it all the time, which is like, why did you guys create the core wallet when there's so many wallets out there? And it, the simple answer was that we wanted to support a, a multi-chain universe and a multi-blockchain universe. And we went out in, in early, late 2020, early 2021 and talked to a lot of the existing wallet providers and and they were definitely on board for supporting the EVM-based chain, but they weren't on board with supporting every EVM-based chain. And so we knew that subnets were going to be part of the long-term plan, and we knew we needed a wallet architecture that would support anybody who wanted to launch a subnet. And the same was with our explorers, right? Our explorers built to support multiple networks and kind of combine them all together. So if you launch a subnet, if you launch a custom blockchain, you will get the underlying tooling that's necessary for you to reach success with it, you know, as part of the of the guarantee from for doing that. And so I, I think this is something that we're constantly trying to support, which is prepare for the mass adoption moment and make sure that all the necessary kind of primitive tooling is in place to support it. And you know, I think um, see this see this wallets came out on core. To, uh, two weeks ago. And so the idea of having to use a seed phrase, um, you know, and this, the kind of account abstraction models that are happening, but that one's also multi-chain. That's the big difference on it. It's not only um, account abstraction for the EVM, but it's account abstraction for multi-VM. Yeah. Those, it is tricky. As you continue to scale, you run into different issues. And I think as much as possible, getting in front of those is kind of the paramount thing. But it's awesome to hear that. I mean, whether it's the wallet or the block explorer, Avalanche is thinking of that multi-chain future with that in mind to make it easy to integrate those down the line because that can be tricky. Uh, there are potentially hundreds of thousands or uh, hundreds of millions of different subnets uh, be adding quite a few... Uh, <laughs> Uh, quite a few different blockchains. Yeah, for sure. And 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 I think what we're starting to see more and more is the willingness for more traditional enterprises to come in. You know, the, there's the gaming side, but we're also seeing a lot more interest from institutional finance and enterprise. And so on the institutional finance side, um, at the Singapore FinTech Festival, there was a couple of projects announced by JP Morgan and, and um, Citibank. And so, you know, building uh, requests for quote and matching systems internally and also kind of global token um, security platforms. And, and so 
a lot of that happened this year because they didn't have to think about the underlying infrastructure. And again, I think as, as, as blockchain as a whole and Web3 as a whole starts to just take away that burden of having to understand all these complex concepts in order to get something to market, we'll start to see a lot more of it. And then I think on the other side of that was, you know, we've seen a lot of loyalty marketing kind of points programs start to delve into blockchain applications. And so the the ones we were specifically working on was SK, the multi-conglomerate um, in, in South Korea. And what they did was really cool because they took an existing mobile application and they just plugged in a Web3 component on the back end of that. Um, and so, you know, they had their OK <coughs> cashback application. And, and, you know, why were they doing it? Well, they were looking for, you know, improved engagement from a certain audience range. And, and, um, and they're also kind of looking at new revenue and, and just trying to, you know, I think Asia Pacific as a whole is really supporting Web3 as a future innovation um, channel. Um, like kind of what you're seeing with AI in the US, you're seeing more of that AI plus Web3 kind of in the Asia Pacific region. And so companies like SK Planet, even though they're massive, are really making a commitment to implementing Web3 technologies into kind of the existing Web2 traditional applications. I've I've observed similar things uh, when I went to Asia and how open-minded generally they were to blockchain. I, I don't know what it is in the US if people have just gotten burnt or uh, the news outlets just saying, don't use blockchains, it's a scam, whatever it is. It feels like the US is a little bit more slow, which is kind of funny because a lot of builders are here. Um, unfortunately, I think the US makes it a little bit harder for them, but it is very fascinating. In terms of I mean, just kind of pulling on the thread of the institutional adoption or mm -hmm. um, of subnets. Can you share any more on what use cases that you're excited about? I know you mentioned JP Morgan. Are there any others that you think are going to continue to double down and use subnets kind of in the coming years? Yeah, I mean, I think fine. I know this has been talked about forever, but I do think the tokenization of real world assets is starting to happen. and and with the use cases that we saw, even those were proof of concepts. We are seeing very serious consideration um, of blockchains to solve these problems. And, and when you get into kind of enterprise and institutional finance, yeah, there's new revenue streams and yeah, there's definitely innovation, but I would say more than anything, what's driving it is operational efficiency. And so, you know, <laughs> Obviously, having like an instant settlement layer um, can mean a lot to, to traditional finance, which is usually settling in T plus one, T plus two, even T plus three. Yeah. And like, you know, over the holidays. It's rather remarkable in 2023. Uh, it's still two, generally T plus two. Uh, if we're lucky, T plus one, which is yeah. kind of crazy. Totally. And so it solves that. And so it, it takes a lot just in the fact that you're working in a purely digital arena it allows for two things. It allows for none of that translation back and forth. It allows for seamless interoperability um, between them. And then it also allows for fractionalization of some assets that were possibly a bit more exotic. 
um, in the past and allows you know real consideration of opening those up, whether it be venture capital um, or things like that. You know, it, it really opens up those opportunities where they didn't exist before. And I think that's pretty attractive to your point. You, we got to get through the regulatory landscape. And I think in the U.S., the focus has been more on the cryptocurrency as a form of speculative trading and the outcome of that and, and a lot of things that happened on that front. Whereas, and I think Asia, they're actually looking at it as, okay, there's this aspect of it that has to do with cryptocurrency and speculative trading, but there's also this blockchain aspect of it that has all of this utility. And so, you know, I'm neither on one side of the fence or the other. I think you got to have both in order to really kind of come up with some of these innovative use cases. But I think the, the U.S. has been focused on one where I think Asia Pacific has really been willing to kind of look at, at both sides of that coin. That is true. It's been interesting recently, just some of the discussion on X about the speculative nature of products and bootstrapping this as product people. We, we love those flywheels, as you mentioned. And I think the hard part is some of that speculation is part of the flywheel. Uh, it gets it going. It gets people willing to experiment or jump through some of these hoops that traditionally they wouldn't do in the Web2 world, which is a bonus and ultimately can be a distraction as it kind of works against you. And sometimes is, I mean, just as a product person yourself, is there any kind of best, best practices that you have observed just working with um, Ava Labs over kind of the last couple of years, things that you either want to see more of or less of? <laughs> um, so, I mean, I think the, the more of is, I mean, in any cycle, right, the maturity cycle of products, there always starts with a little, especially with new technology. The technology is usually very forward in the beginning. You get your kind of early adopters who are on the edge, and it usually comes with greater rewards because the risk is so much more. And then as you see the utility of the underlying product grow, you kind of see that risk diminish a little bit, and therefore the returns also diminish a little bit. And that's, you know, the, the return aspect is, is exciting. It draws in a lot of people um, for it. But it also, you know, you start to look at the utility side of it. And I think we're at this point now where the utility side is starting to equally play in with the kind of speculative, you know, risk reward, um, kind of that adrenaline rush of DGEN, DeFi and all the things that go along with that. Um, and then just the utility around the potential for NFTs ticketing, loyalty points, programs, um, social representations. You know, you look at things like like Stars Arena where, you know, kind of a Twitter-like thing in, you know, the, the underlying concept's really neat where you get to control your space, you buy into the person who you want to have direct contact with in order to get their channel. And then their growth, you know, they basically see growth in, in that and their value as a um, – as somebody providing valuable information is reflected by the number of people that follow them and they own that space and that content. And I think that that kind of utility is perfectly mixed in with the speculation where you get these random spikes, but it's kind of showing where we are in that medium. And I think it'll just continue to kind of grow upward until it's more about the maturity of the, uh, of the underlying utility of the, of the technology mixed in with the pure digital aspect of cryptocurrencies and, the fluid nature of them. I, I I agree with you. Like, you know, I know we're in the holiday season right now, but it, and if you were trying to do any kind of large monetary transaction in this time of the year, it gets exponentially harder. And that 
Oh, yeah. Just doesn't need to be that it, way. I mean, it's crazy to me, even if you, I mean, the fact that you can't do wire transfers or like money movements on the weekend generally, uh, it's kind of comical when it's just moving bytes around from one computer to another. And so I'm very appreciative that ultimately Bitcoin was the inception of the industry with kind of this digital ownership and digital scarcity that expanded with smart contract platforms. And I think to your point, now we're just getting to the ability where you can have these smart contract platforms at scale. Mm. Uh, and that's a very exciting thing because when you combine the scale aspect with this digital ownership, I'm very excited to see where builders ultimately take this and these early kind of experimentations, either with like DeFi summer uh, happening on Ethereum, <laughs> inscriptions for better or for worse. It's, it's really fascinating to me just to see all these different experiments really play out in real time that have both very can have large positive or negative impacts on people. Yeah. Yeah. And it's the learning experience, right? I mean, this is just the inscriptions is just another point in which we're preparing for the mass adoption point in the future. And we have to go through this, these series of trials in order and solve for them. Right. And I think they're just all tests and then you solve for them and, and then you kind of get further up on the, the legitimacy of the technology block. We all know AI has been around forever, right? It's just yeah. been slowly maturing its way up until it got to the point where the technology had kind of overcome enough of the complexities and the obstacles that it was accessible to a much broader audience. And I think people saw that and that was the moment. And then it's just like wildfire at that point. Uh, overnight uh, success, 30 years, 40 years, 50 years in the making. Totally. Exactly. It's comical. In terms of kind of the discussions that are going on in X or Twitter, uh, I think there's been a lot of kind of recent debates around best scaling solutions. I mean, kind of different fragmentations for layer twos, uh, kind of high throughput chains versus low throughput chains, different uh, blockchain virtual machines. Can you maybe, if you were had to talk to an engineer or a product builder, even a institutional client kind of make the pitch for why the subnet is the best architecture uh, out of all these different blockchain designs as someone that's maybe uh, doesn't want to put in the work or actually shouldn't, should focus on the product. Can you maybe make a pitch to why the Avalanche ecosystem is the best place to do that? Yeah, I mean, I think the Avalanche ecosystem offers a lot of flexibility in being able to choose how you want to do it. I mean, the the layer two, all the mechanics of that ultimately flow up to a layer one. So they're going to have all the limitations of the layer one at some point. Um, putting that aside, you know, you start to see these these large asynchronous, you know, high transaction kind of horizontal scaling solutions. And I think there's quite a bit of viability in, in some of those. Um, you know, I'm not the expert here, but from what I've seen, um, you know, there's some pretty neat things happening and teams are working hard and there's a lot of dollars being invested to prove out these theories. And that's always a good sign. Um, so Avalanche is kind of taking advantage of both of those where it's just horizontally scaling that, but you can take the vertical scaling solution and throw it into one of the horizontal slices. 
So at the end of the day, it's not really pinning you into any kind of architecture model. It's really trying to let you choose um, based on what your use case and what your strengths are. And it's it's been very successful at that. The other thing I'll say, and this is really a testament to the early founding team, is that the technology vision they had, and this is you know, one of the major reasons that I joined this company, is that you know I saw this video of of Emin, you know, early on talking about the consensus algorithm and and uh, and you know how it's using repeated subsampling to to come to this decision point, and I thought, okay. A lot of this is founded in this academic rigor that comes with being a professor at an Ivy League, at an Ivy League school, and all his, all the people he had around him had that same rigor. And so, what you've seen three years later is the technology is proven. You never see Avalanche go out with like future promise of something's going to happen at some point. If anything, it's a weakness for us. We don't play the hype game extremely well, and so we're always just pushing the technology, proving the technology, and then saying, okay, great, it works. Now let's go talk about it. So when I'm talking to the financial institutions and the enterprises, <coughs> even you know the, the native crypto builders, it is, hey, look what's already been built. These are real world use cases. They're already on chain. And here are the solutions that are coming up. And then if they want to look into the roadmap, it's really just building on this foundation that we already know works. I mean, if you build a massive house on an unstable foundation, eventually as you get higher, it's going to crumble. And so I think the the solid foundations are critical. And I think we can really point to the fact that the foundations are solid and that a lot of critical thinking has gone into every step of the way and making sure the next step, or if we do put a layer on top or on the side of it, that it, it attaches in, in a way that, that really kind of fits the under the underlying modularity and the, in the original visions of the founding team. Yeah, I, th I think to that kind of the under promise over deliver is an important one for the space when everybody will promise you a 10,000x and a 100 billion TPS uh, blockchain and you'll be rich tomorrow. Really building things that actually matter are extremely important. And I, I think to your point, maybe just double clicking it, kind of the general pitch is having that kind of proven flexibility from day one, being able to really architect over the long term, not only today, but also in the future, really controlling your own destiny is kind of the real pitch that Avalanche or Avalabs provides for whether it's institutionals, um, clients, whether it's the crypto degen or people that just want to try out different blockchain architectures, you can really experiment and try whatever you like, which is kind of the uh, the under under promise over deliver uh, one of the key points. Yeah, totally. And that's something that we're hyper focused on right now is we're going to be rolling out this thing called the founders tier in um, probably Q1, maybe Q2 of next year, which really gives a very cost effective, powerful entry level tier to be able to launch your application. Because again, our whole mission is just like, adoption. Um, and so it's just, what can we do to have people have the idea and then take the idea to market and see if it works? And we just want to make that um, as simple as possible. And so having technology that works and then, you know, keep building this integration layer. I talked about the third web stuff, but really there's 
a per sector implementation, like institutional finance needs private explorers and obfuscated data on chain and certain things, you know, and custody solutions and certain things that that others don't. And so the idea is that the, the integration sections within AvaCloud will, will allow them to quickly get those kind of standard components in place. Gaming has their own verifiable randomness, the enterprise side, processing credit cards. I mean, these are pretty fairly obvious layers that some people want. And so just provide these for them and then, you know, let them kind of get to market and see if it's going to work. And that's really the focus going into next year. Yeah. Abstract as much as you can and let the application engineers focus on applications. I love it. Totally. In terms of, I mean, next six months, one year, not particularly on the Ava lab side, but maybe from the product point of view, are there any applications that either currently exist today that you're looking forward to? I know you also mentioned gaming as something that you're excited about, but maybe just as you personally, Nick, what, what things are you looking forward to in 2024? Yeah. So, I mean, my background's traditional finance. So all the stuff I'm seeing around tokenization of real world assets, um, regulated, all that regulated stuff. That's interesting to me. Um, I, I love the ability for different economic, economic stratospheres of, of, of wealth to be able to participate in some of the more, you know, higher end regulated financial activities. And I think that blockchain has the ability to, to bring that into a, a reality. I think on the gaming side, um, I'm not a real hardcore gamer, but the stuff I've seen excites me. And so I know, and I know the people that in the organization that are pretty hardcore gamers are excited. And I think, and I'm really excited to see the impact and the uptake of that. Um, and whether it, it, it does catch on, like we think it's going to, um, and this is the, the year for gaming enterprise keeps pushing along, but it's mostly, again, it's mostly, mostly in Asia right now is where we're, we're seeing that. And so we want to basically support that as much as possible. Um, and then, you know, kind of what I'd like to see is just, I think that I, I think the tribalism within crypto and specifically has waned a bit in the bear market. And I think that makes for a better industry as a whole. Um, and so I, I think this continued on that route where, um, you know, everybody's kind of going down their own path and testing their own theories, but still working together as a group to kind of push the industry as a whole forward is something that I'd really like to see uh, in 24. Yeah, I would definitely echo that. I mean, I don't know if we can totally eliminate the tribalism. I think everybody likes to uh, kind of pick their favorite horse, so to speak. But I'm excited that the industry learns from each other. And really, I mean, uh, something happens int interesting in Avalanche, all the other engineers kind of look over and say, oh, that's actually a really good idea. I should <laughs> I should do something similar or uh, something has happened in Ethereum world and people are like, yeah, this this is a cool idea. Let me bring. And I think that semi collaborative slash competitive nature is the thing that will continue to push us forward in 2024. And ultimately, I think something that you and I are both very much aligned on is that mainstream user adoption from 
really the low couple hundred thousand people that we have doing things on chain to ultimately the hundreds of millions and billions that we want to get to to get to that web two type numbers because i think for us to grow the industry we really just need it to scale in terms of user adoptions and not just dollars or things that have kind of purely from an investment standpoint yeah that, and i think that i think well total speculation but i think that mass adoption comes from traditional companies embedding web three applications into what they're doing today probably for cost efficiency mostly reasons but that's going to then spur on the innovation chain. Again, getting back to like the flywheel, those applications are going to lead to more and more. And then I think you're going to start to see kind of the next wave of, you know, kind of like the taxi cab to ride share moments happen um, because the technology will not be so foreign to people to kind of understand what the capabilities are, maybe rethinking some problems that have been solved in one way, but maybe solving them in a better way using kind of the web three, the web three capabilities. Yeah, 100%. I'm excited for the continued experimentation of web three engineers. And I think, I mean, kind of, as we've touched upon this entire time, that moment where we enable scalability, I think is really just upon us. Uh, I'm fascinated to continue to watch what Avalanche uh, and the Avalabs team continue to ship. Uh, and kudos to you, Nick, for spearheading all the things that AvaCloud has been able to launch more recently or in the past couple of years or so. Uh, we'll continue to cheer you guys on. Awesome. I really appreciate it. It's been great to talk with you. And, and yeah, love the podcast. Likewise. Thanks, Nick. Appreciate right. it. Thank you.